Hello and welcome to the Performance Audit Report. My name is Yusuf Muller. My name is Connor McGarrity. The Performance Audit Report is a new podcast that is dedicated to performance auditors. Some of you may have listened to the Assurance show before, and you would have noticed that that had both internal auditors and performance auditors as its intended audience. This podcast is very specific and dedicated to the performance audit world and performance audit professionals like yourself. This first episode is with Scott Frank, the Director of Performance Audit and IT Audit at the Washington State Audit Office. We'll get into the episode, but before we do that, let's just explain to you what this podcast is and what the cadence will be. Okay, so the podcast will be being released fortnightly. We'll have interspersed guest episodes once a month. We'll speak to guests from the world of performance auditing. And in between, we'll discuss what's emerging in the performance audit world. And in particular, some interesting reports that we've seen from around the world in recent times. So the National State Audit Association Conference 2022 was held in Atlanta, Georgia at the Omni Hotel at the Battery in Atlanta, a fantastic location where we were able to watch a few Atlanta Braves matches directly from the hotel in the pool deck, which was excellent. And that was the 44th NSAA conference, 32 states represented there with 27 audit principals slash state auditors. So fantastic turnout there. And about 200 attendees? Yeah, just a tick over. So that was great post-pandemic. So in two weeks' time, we'll be talking about some of what we saw at the conference. Lots of good learnings for performance auditors. Thanks again to the Audit Office of Georgia and the president of the NSA, Greg Griffin, for hosting us and for Josh Winfrey and the team at the NSA for hosting us at the conference. Fantastic experience. And it started off with this great experience with Scott talking about everything that the Washington State Audit Office does in relation to performance audit. I hope you enjoy this episode. Our guest today is Scott Frank from the Washington State Auditor's Office. Scott, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Okay, so Scott, maybe if we could just start with a quick intro, a bit about your background, about your office, your current role, and the work that you do. Sure. I've been in the performance audit field for about 20-some years. I originally started in the state of Kansas here in the U.S., working for the Legislative Division of Post Audit. Got there right out of graduate school and kind of worked my way through that. I served my last eight years as the head of that office, the Legislative Auditor for Kansas, about four years ago, I decided to do a career change and came out here to the state of Washington, working as the director of performance and IT audit for the state auditor's office out here. It's been a great move, professionally and personally. Absolutely love it. And how many people in the performance audit team? Our performance audit team in Washington has about 35 people that work specifically on performance audits. That's out of a total office of about 450 staff for the state auditor's office. So, Scott, you mentioned there that you've worked both as an appointed auditor for the legislative assemblies and as a performance auditor for an individually elected state auditor, uh, your position currently. Can you talk us through a little bit the differences in those arrangements? Sure. So the most obvious difference is where the audits come from. When I worked for the Kansas legislature, all of our audits were assigned to us by a legislative committee. We didn't have any discretion in what we picked. Legislators would express an interest in something they wanted to have audited. We'd kind of help them frame that up into a proposal of something that was auditable, but then it was really up to a committee to decide what we were going to look at. Completely different when I came out to Washington here. I work for an independently elected official. We have the authority to direct and select our own audits and really having to develop an approach to selecting audits that are going to have the highest impact. And so that was one of the big differences between the two. The other one is really the emphasis of the programs. When I worked for the legislature, 
I think the primary thing they valued out of us was that we were independent and we could give an independent and unbiased account of whatever subject matter they were interested in. They were interested in recommendations, but it really wasn't the primary focus. It was really getting the information really different in Washington. Our focus is very much on improving government, and therefore we really only want to do audits if we think that we're going to find meaningful recommendations that we can make. And so that's really where the value is. So you mentioned there in your current role, really your office decides its own work plan and which audits are going to deliver the greatest impact. Is there also the ability for you to see receive, for example, referrals from members of the public or from elected officials requesting a certain audit be undertaken? Yes. And in fact, when we're building our work plan, we try and do a fair amount of outreach to understand what members of the legislature would be interested in, what various stakeholders groups would be interested in. We reach out to the agencies themselves and state government and see if they have an interest in particular audits. We, we take that all into account when we're building our work plan. In fact, knowing that there's some outside interest in an audit is something that factors into whether we're going to select the audit or not. If it's going to be impactful, we want it to be things that people are going to care about, and that's one way to help assure that. And as part of that research, would you ever look at other states or other audit offices and what they have done or what they intend to do or perhaps what impact they have delivered? Absolutely. It's a great way to to learn about potential audits. You find out what your colleagues in other states are doing. Obviously, you have to do some assessment to figure out if the same kind of programs and the same issues might even exist in Washington. But, but absolutely, we've modeled reports after what we've seen in other states. And do you publish your forward work plan? Is that available so that the audits you intend to conduct is available to the public? Say? It is. Uh, we, we put the audits that we are working on and planning to work on on our website so people can see those. One of the areas of focus that you are building out is use, the use of data and visualizations. In terms of building that function out, what are the sort of skill sets that are required and what does that mean for resourcing? Within our performance audit team, there are certain tools that we just expect that everybody is going to know how to use so that they can handle whatever data they're working with. Traditionally, that's going to be spreadsheet programs like Excel. But more and more, I want my auditors to be able to also work with tools that allow them to query data, to match data, at least to be able to work with maybe not the most complicated sets of data, but things that they can join, things that not have to rely on an outsider to help them with that. The types of analysis that most of them would do are still fairly basic in the sense that they're going to look for trends over time. They're going to tabulate things and more simple calculations, but they need to be able to get the data to the place where they can do that. So we need that for everybody. Then we just need some people who have higher level skills. We have a methodologist and a few other auditors that have much more developed statistical abilities and they can either do or help the auditors when we need to move into something that's much more robust than just looking at some totals and so forth. We also, an area that we're working to develop, and we're really trying to develop this for the whole agency, not just for a performance audit function, is our ability to use data and data science to drive where our audits are going to look. So not just using analytics to perform testing, to get the evidence, to answer particular audit objectives, but also to figure out what audit objectives we ought to be even pursuing. That brings in a whole new skill set of somebody who has the ability to work with auditors who may or may not know anything about data, understand what it is they would like to be looking at in the data, and then also has the statistical and mathematic ability to say, okay, I know what that would look like in data. I know how to model it. I know how to test for it, and then help us automate that to get it out of the data. And that's 
really an area that we're now moving into. One of the challenges when you go into that area where you have somebody that has that particular skill set is ensuring that the team more broadly understand what's possible. The data scientists can only do so much in terms of being able to help work out what's going to be done on an audit. How do you upskill the team more broadly just to understand what they can do? I believe it starts to feed on itself. So if if you can get somebody with a strong data background to kind of show the way and start to show some things and, and especially to start to teach people. So if you combine that, if they all have some basic quantitative and data manipulation abilities and then someone can show some of the things that are possible, then I do think that the auditors themselves start to get creative and start to realize, well, what about this? And you get a kind of a virtuous circle out of it. At least that's what I hope. Yep. So some experiential <laughs> learning there. So, so there's a couple of things there. One is seeing what is possible on audits and then getting better and better. But like you said, also getting the whole team to be able to do some of the basic work themselves without necessarily reaching out. What have you found in terms of not necessarily talking about Washington specifically, but you know, more broadly across the roles that you've had, the willingness of the teams to actually to do that? My experience has been that they really want to, but many are a little bit intimidated with working with data. And until they get good at it, there's a, th- a thing I often hear, which is sort of, I need to be on projects where I can work with the data. I've not assigned to projects that lend themselves to the data. And until I get that, I'm not going to know how to do that. And I know when they're starting to get it, when I stop hearing that, because then they have the skills and they realize every audit has this possibility. They don't need to be assigned to a specific audit to get a chance to work with data because it's always there. And now they're not being assigned it, they're seeing it. And so that's one I know that we're kind of turning the corner in that regard, but I've never encountered it being an issue of willingness. I think that people get pretty excited about it and really want to learn how to do it, but just some are very confident about it and others, they need to get some experience and get confident. So on the job, obviously, is the best way to learn. But like you said, there's data on every audit that you do. There's going to be very, very few audits that you do that don't involve any sort of data at all. So there's always an opportunity to learn a little bit. So that's thinking in terms of data acquisition, data preparation, data analysis. In terms of data visualization, how has that been going for you guys? And and do you see it as something that you use and will continue to use for analysis and reporting? Yeah, I see it kind of playing out in a couple of ways. One is with regard to analysis. In my other hat, not in my performance audit hat, being over our IT audit function, we're working on building out more accessible dashboards that will allow all of our auditors to more easily access and interact with the data for the particular agency or topic that they're working with so that they can do that exploration. And so I see that there are a lot of power in using visualization tools to enable that. Obviously, we've always in our reports used a lot of charts to try and show information rather than just try to describe it, but to to show people. And so I don't think that's ever going to go away. And something we've done for a few of our projects that I think has a lot of promise is almost creating like a supplemental data story that goes along with the report. So we've published our report, but then if you really want to interact with the data that went behind this, and in some cases, maybe almost like having a graphic that's really, really developed that they can really see like something that fold out over time and see what was going on with the data. And so using things like Tableau and Power BI to, to put those data stories together. And I think that's an area we've dabbled with, but I think there's a lot of potential there because we like to think that the public really wants to read our audit reports, but 
they don't. <laughs> they just want the information from the audit reports. And so if we can put that information out there in a way that's really accessible and draws them in, then I think we'll be more effective in communicating our messages. So making the report come to life. So exactly. In terms of reception within the audit office for those visualizations, both the exploratory and explanatory, what has your experience been with that? Are the auditors interested? Are they using it? It's a little premature on the dashboards for exploring it because that's something that we're still building out. So I don't really know that I have a reaction yet to that. As far as putting together data stories, and so I think people are very interested in that. There's a little bit of an artistic feel to that, to being really good at. So some people naturally kind of gravitate towards that and really get a lot of satisfaction out of it. Others, I think, would like to do it, but maybe feel like they kind of struggle with it. And so it's the kind of thing, as long as I have some people on my team who can do that and have a knack for it. I think that's all that I need. It's not something that I'm going to make all my auditors be able to do. You mentioned towards the top of the show about the importance of delivering audits that have maximum impact. What we didn't talk about was to deliver audits, state auditors need to be properly funded. From our reading, there's a fairly unique or different way in which your state audit office is funded. Can you talk us through that process and how that originated? In the mid-2000s, the citizens of Washington passed the Citizens Initiative 900 that established the Performance Audit Authority for the State Auditor's Office and tied to it a funding mechanism, which is a small share of the state sales tax that did two things. You know, First off, obviously establishing it, now we had a direction and a mandate to go do these audits, but that funding mechanism is very unique. I am not aware of any other state audit office in the U.S. that has anything like that. doesn't mean that we don't still have to go through a process to access some of that funding. So it's not as easy as it might sound, but it does establish that there's a pot of money that is meant for performance audit work. That is a huge benefit in knowing that you're going to have resources to do this work. And so we're blessed with that. We have great resources to do the work that we do. It's a really overt commitment to, you know, the importance attached to performance audit in this state through that funding mechanism. So that's really interesting. Okay, you've got your funding settled through the I-900 initiative, and now you've got to go and deliver your performance audits. And you're looking for those ones that deliver the greatest impact. We'd be interested in getting your thoughts on how you go about measuring that impact or ensuring you deliver the maximum impact across your portfolio. First off, a common measure that shops like to use that I'm not a fan of is they like to do sort of a return on investment. Like, you know, what kind of savings have we identified? What kind of revenue opportunities have we identified? And, and compare that to what we cost. I have concerns about that as a metric. I don't mind that as kind of a supplement. One issue I have with that is that it sort of sets a standard that the only audits that are valuable are the ones that involve money. And some of the most important audits that performance auditors can do, they change the system, um, they make people safer, they improve education. And oftentimes to do that, it's actually going to cost money. And so I, I don't like the emphasis that we're just there to find savings. The other thing is I find those metrics are a little bit disingenuous because they rarely take into account all those audits that cost money as well. So they'll say, we found all this savings, but it doesn't take into account all the audits that made really good recommendations, but it's going to cost somebody some money to to fix. So it's really a one-sided calculation. So I'd I'd rather use those almost as anecdotes when we find something very useful, but not make that a metric. So to me, one of the best metrics of whether the audits are quality audits is actually the rate at which the agencies are adopting the recommendations. Because 
in my way of thinking, agencies really don't want to make changes unless you've convinced them that they're valuable. And so if they implement your recommendations, it's because you've done a good job of building the case that there's an issue. You've gotten down to what the cause of the issue is. You have given them a recommendation that's going to address that. And it would be obvious to them that they should implement that recommendation. So I've actually always kind of liked that, even though there is an element of we don't control whether they're going to implement our recommendations. I still like that as a metric of whether we're making quality recommendations. And that goes back to having a compelling narrative, compelling evidence and telling the compelling story, whether that be through charts and visuals and, you know, easy to understand language for your users or ports. Exactly. Yep. Another thing that's really interesting that you guys have set up in your state audit office, the Center for Government Innovation. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. And so this is almost like a consulting or a non-audit service arm of the state auditor's office. It came about because when Initiative 900 provided all these resources for performance audits, although it's very generous with the resources that we have, there is no way we would ever be able to conduct performance audits of all the local governments that exist in Washington. There are almost 2,400 local governments. We actually do have an auditing relationship through financial audit with all of them. But for performance audit, we would never touch them. And so this was a way to take some of the lessons we started learning from performance audits and create a vehicle for pushing those out so that some of those other areas that would never participate in a performance audit might get some benefit from what we had learned. And so that centered absolutely focuses on when we find items of interest in our performance audits that were more broadly appealing. We push them out to the center. A recent example, we had conducted an audit taking a look at, it's now a pretty controversial topic, but looking at immunization requirements in schools. And we had observed that there were certain schools in in the state that did a great job of meeting all of those requirements and others that were consistently failing to meet those requirements. And so we just, we kind of did like a differential analysis. Can we tell what separates the two? And we did, we identified some pretty basic things of like the ones that did well, they communicated early, they communicated often, they dedicated resources to maintaining that. And in the end, they weren't afraid if they needed to, to enforce the rules and tell a family, your child's not coming to school until they meet the requirements. And the ones that struggled did not. And so once we discovered all that, we packaged that up into a piece that we could then make as a resource that would be available like a little article and pushed it out to the rest of the schools and said, hey, this can help. And so that's the idea behind the center is to push those kinds of practices out. And does the center ever receive requests from local government about, oh, we'd like to know some better practice in this area. Can you help us out? That type of thing? Yeah, absolutely. And they've, over time, moved beyond just what they learn from the performance audits. They also have a couple of uh, Lean Six Sigma consultants who can go out and help smaller governments kind of work through some of those projects. We've also used it as a vehicle to push out some basic security practices for local governments because they often really struggle with what to do with that. And so that becomes a vehicle for that. And then there's also, as the auditor's office, we have a lot of expertise in cash handling, various types of financial controls. And so we build resources and push them out to them for those as well. We're going to round off our discussion today by talking about some recent reports, particularly interesting reports that we saw. So there's three we wanted to get into. The first is auditing culture, the departments of parks and wildlife. The second was around cybersecurity, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But the third in the list, but the first that we want to talk about right now is the the report that you guys put out around about February on evaluating Washington's ballot rejection rates. And you said Washington is one of a few states in the U.S. that votes entirely by mail. 
and then there's some further story you have on that and some recommendations. Do you want to talk a bit about that one in particular? Yeah. Voting by mail became a very prominent and hot topic in the U.S. during the 2020 presidential election, but it's something that Washington has been doing for a very long time where all of the elections are done entirely by mail-in ballots. It's something that Washingtonians are very proud of and feel really good about what it does for voter participation. We had some legislators who had some concerns, though they had seen some reporting that Washington had the highest rejection rate for ballots in the country. And that's true, but there's a big asterisk to that, which is rejecting a ballot, like coming in and saying it's not going to be counted, is sort of a unique artifact of voting by mail. So when when people vote in person, this doesn't happen. That doesn't mean they might not get turned away for other reasons, but their ballot is not rejected, so it's not counted that way. So only states that vote entirely by mail end up at the top of the list. So Washington was at the top. It was very much in line with other states that did entirely voting by mail. That being said, the legislature still wanted us to look into it. They wanted to know why it was so high. They also wanted to know why there were differences across counties. And they also wanted to know, are there any differences across demographic groups? And so to me, one of the most interesting things when this was to tackle these questions of demographics. In particular, there was a lot of interest in their differences by race and ethnicity. This is data that we do not collect on voters. And so we had to come up with a method in order to analyze ballots and ballot rejections when we don't know the race and ethnicity of the voter, but maybe come up with a way to guess it. And so what we ended up doing was using a technique that comes out of some of the consumer protection agencies that are also looking for patterns of discrimination in areas where this data has not been collected. And so we use a predictive algorithm. It takes a person's first and last name, has a probability from the census of that first and last name being affiliated with a certain race or ethnicity, combines that with we do know for the voters where they live, we know the demographic characteristics of their census block where they live, so that also gives us a probability, and then you merge the two together, you get a pretty accurate, especially across large groups of people, pretty good prediction of whether the person is white or black or Hispanic, and then that we could then use as a data point, when we were now analyzing across all the ballots that are cast, what's the likelihood that there's going to be a difference in rejection rates based on race and ethnicity? Unfortunately, we did see that. We saw that pretty much all of the sort of marginalized communities that we think of with race and ethnicity were, in some cases, much more likely to have their ballots rejected than strictly white voters. That was troubling to a lot of people to have that finding come out. But it also sparked some action. It sparked the legislature gave some more funding to have another group dig deeper into that. Why? Because we couldn't really, we just weren't able to get it. Why? But also some money to do just general better outreach. Even if we can't figure out why, how can we overcome that and start to lower rejection rate? So I think it sparked a lot of action and was kind of very interesting to me as an auditor to come up with such a highly quantitative approach to looking at a question. And it's one of those areas where with a lot of data work that is performed Often you try to stay away from anything that may be indicative of bias in any way. But in cases like this, you do want to know because you want to know what to target. So it's not like I'm rejecting somebody's claim. It's I'm rejecting somebody's ballot, but I need to know whether there are any underlying factors to those rejections coming in. So that's really interesting because you know a lot of times as auditors, we do kind of go, I can't look at that because that would mean bias. It isn't always the case. It it does depend on the subject matter. Obviously, you had a data challenge. What is the biggest people challenge that you had in delivering this audit? Probably the biggest challenge was trying to explain why we couldn't solve the whole thing. 
it was very frustrating for a lot of people to hear that we see this evidence that certain voters are more likely to have their ballot rejected, but we couldn't tell them why. And quite honestly, academic research hasn't really figured out why either. And a lot of stakeholders being very unsatisfied with that. It's almost like you dropped the problem on my doorstep, but you didn't tell me how to solve it. And, yeah. and, ideal, and normally we do want to try and solve it. We just couldn't. And so I think that was the, the hard part. I mean, I think people realized it was valuable, but there was a frustration that that created. In terms of helping legislators determine whether to continue using voting by mail, does this audit help with that in any way or, or detract from that in any way? That was a, a, a question that came up was, does this call into question mail-in voting? And our position was that we don't think so in large part because if we were going to do that, you'd probably need to also look at states that do far more in person and what are the drawbacks there. So it definitely showed some issues with our system. Our feeling was that it doesn't call it into question unless you can also do some sort of comparable analysis of other types of voting and show that another one's better. And so we felt pretty comfortable that from our perspective, mail-in balloting was still the way to do it. That's a great example of where data didn't exist and we needed to find it, not necessarily make it up. There was another audit that you guys did in, in the last couple of years around culture within the workplace, within the Department of Parks and Wildlife in this case. That's quite an interesting topic. How did you guys go about doing that? Because it's not something you see very often. Yeah, you're right. And I know that there's been a movement in the U.S. and the Institute of Internal Auditors done some work around culture, kind of building out more of sort of when you think of the control environment, tone at the top and the culture of the organization. But we didn't approach it the way that, not that there's anything wrong with the way they've approached it, but we wanted to do something far deeper. So in this case... We knew that we had an agency, the Department of Fish and Wildlife in Washington, that had been rocked by some serious scandals involving sexual harassment, sexual assault, and there were a lot of concerns from the outside and probably from the inside that there were issues with the culture, that it was that it was a very old male-dominated culture. And so when we decided that we would take a look at an audit there, we kept coming back to culture as far as what we thought maybe our objectives needed to be around. And so that's where we decided to land was let's take a look at their culture. So the approach we ended up using came from a professor that I had encountered 25 years ago when I was in graduate school who was in the school of business, but was focused on organizational behavior and was a big advocate for what I would call some anthropological techniques for studying. And it was a lot of very, very qualitative work, a lot of focus groups, one-on-one interviews, shadowing, like really embed yourself in the organization and try and understand the culture before you ever try and measure anything with more typical quantitative data. And so knowing what he had described and that had always been kind of kicking around in my head. It's kind of a neat thing, but I've never had a project that it ever seemed like it would lend it to. Well, if we're going to study the culture of an organization, that seemed to be the way to do it. So we happened to have somebody who worked in our organization whose background was in anthropology. He was able to help us design the methods and we set out to do an audit of culture that really started with this deep exploration of lots and lots and lots of interactions with employees, and then eventually identified the themes of what we were seeing, good and bad, about the culture, 
and then build some more traditional tools, a survey that could be administered across the organization so that you could figure out, are these isolated, these pervasive, how widespread are these these issues, how widespread are these positive things, and then put together a report to kind of describe the culture, how it supports the mission. And this agency knew that they had some issues with their culture, and they've been trying to work on it. And so we did some things to assess whether we thought their initiatives were helpful, ways they could refine them, and altogether you end up with the package that's the audit of the culture. In terms of reception of the report, what did that look like? First off, we'll talk about from the client. It took a long time for them to get their arms around what we were proposing. The people that work there are all very quantitative in direction in their research background, whether it be in natural sciences, engineering, internal audit. There were just people that they're very used to thinking, a very numbers approach. And so it took a long time and probably really deep into the reporting process to really get them to understand and feel more comfortable with the approach we had taken. Because the initial part, all the qualitative work, you don't use random sampling, which seems crazy, but you do. it's called maximum variation sampling. You keep asking until you stop hearing new things. Mm. And so your goal is not to pull a sample that is representative of the organization. It is to explore the organization so that you get all of the issues. The second part is when you figure out if it really represents the organization. And that was really hard for them to feel comfortable with. We eventually got there. But so, and then once they got there, I think they appreciated it. It was a lot of work for them to participate in it. But eventually, I think we got there where they found real value in the report. Externally, from our legislative stakeholders, it highlighted that they had done a lot to improve the culture and they had a lot more to go. And I think the legislators appreciated seeing that and seemed to really engage with the agency to see what more they could do to help them. What does this then look like for other agencies in the state? Is this something that other agencies can use as a methodology to evaluate their own culture? Would you be doing more audits of culture within other agencies? I don't know if they would use this method. I think it's something we would be willing to do again, but we've also learned a lot from this project. This project took about two years to complete, which was entirely too long for a performance audit to routinely take. So one of the things we learned is we tried to look at the culture of the whole organization, and we would really need to pick an area of, you know, whether it be a region of the state, a program, some function, pick something smaller and study the culture of that. And so if we were to do it in the future, we'd have to do something smaller. It was one of the learning points of that. It's not something we're going to go look for opportunities to audit culture, but we have it kind of in our toolkit that if we see an agency, a function, something that seems to have some deeper cultural issues, we now feel like we have an approach to evaluate it. Fantastic. The, the last one I want to talk about is you've obviously been, as with other audit officers, involved in a range of cybersecurity audits. Of course, cybersecurity is a big topic. And so what would a cybersecurity program, I imagine over a number of years, look like within the state auditor's office? So and this draws on again because we have such strong resources from that initiative that a previous state auditor just sort of set a goal that we were going to have some sort of a cybersecurity audit function with those resources. And then we could, over time have built this out. We're very proud of what we're now able to do. What we've done is built a team of auditors who specialize in cybersecurity audits. Some of them are performance auditors who came over to study security. Some of them were financial auditors. Some of them were never an auditor until we hired them and we, we teach them. And so they focus on cybersecurity. 
that's not all that uncommon. That's kind of what a lot of shops have to us. The thing that really makes our program, we think, special is that we also have a team of about five individuals who are, are lifelong security professionals who have worked in other agencies. Most of them have military experience doing security in the military, and they are just very interested in helping. They view this as a vehicle where they can affect the security of a large number of organizations. So we've built that team and they provide a lot of technical support to our auditors. So you have auditors that know a lot about security to start with, specialists behind them who know even more, who can talk the talk with the agency personnel and can really advise, help our auditors interpret what they're seeing. And that's what's probably the special thing. And then the, the, the last part of it, and probably the part that makes it most attractive to the clients, is that we also use some of those resources to hire an external contractor who will come in and do some internal and external penetration tests to really help them get a picture of where the vulnerabilities are in their current posture. And you know, the, the security professionals at those agencies love that part of the audit because that's usually quite expensive and because we're paying for it as part of our audit, yep. they're getting all of that for free. So it's that layering of knowledgeable auditors, very knowledgeable specialists, and some really highly skilled contractors. With ongoing cybersecurity audits, like you said, there's quite a few audit offices that do have cybersecurity functions and do cybersecurity audits continuously. There's many others that do one or two cybersecurity-specific audits a year or even every two years. Your normal performance audit would have a program based on what people are looking for. Financial audit would have a program because every year they need to look at financial audits for particular entities. How do you build that for cybersecurity? How do you build that sort of forward program? What we have really focused on with our audits is twofold in terms of what the audit actually is. One is a look at the control environment, and we use a set of control recommendations. The Center for Internet Security publishes their critical security controls, and that gives us kind of a framework for what to look for. And over time, we build out the ability to evaluate more and more of those recommended controls. We started with their basic six things that they think that ought to be in place. And so we kind of built a program around that. And then as we get more experience, we build that part out. And then the second part of our audits is looking for vulnerabilities. And we started with, um, and we would recommend other places to start with, just vulnerability scans. They they require less skill uh, to, to do, not necessarily less skill to interpret, but less skill to conduct. And so we use some passive scans to just look for things that might be vulnerabilities before we get into the more expensive part, which is the penetration testing that we pay for. So, you know, if someone was building out a program, they could probably start by starting with some controls, a more limited set of controls that they look at, but the most important things and and get kind of good at evaluating those and maybe start with some other ways of looking for vulnerabilities that maybe won't have quite as much appeal for the agency where they, they would love to have somebody come in and do the pen testing, but things that still are valuable. And so that's how I would probably approach building out that program. Really interesting reports. Obviously, the forward work program shows a number of other interesting reports coming out. And so we expect that we will be getting you back on the show to talk to us in detail about some of that in the not too distant future. So how can other auditors get in touch with you guys, find out more about what the Washington State Audit Office does? We have a great website. It's sao.wa.gov, sao.wa.gov. And that's where you can find everything about all of the reports, the information we put out from the Center for Government Innovation. That's all out there. That would be a great way to get in touch with me because you can get my email address and phone number off of the website. We're obviously recording this as the NSA conference begins. And I know you're on the Performance Audit Committee, so that might be another way for people to find you. Absolutely. Excellent. Scott, thank you very much for being on the show. Really appreciate your time today, and I'm sure we'll chat again soon. 
Uh, it's been great. Thanks for having me. The Performance Audit Report is produced by PA Reports, the Performance Audit Research Division of Risk Insights. PA Reports helps streamline and accelerate your performance audit research, bringing to you relevant insights that can help your audit get off the ground faster.